You are listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. My name is Dr. Jenny O'Connor, a lecturer of English at Waterford Institute of Technology. And today I'm joined by Kate McCarthy, who lectures and teaches in theatre studies in English and is particularly interested in contemporary theatre and literature and practice, which is part of what we're going to be discussing today. Also in studio is Dr. Krista de Bruun, a lecturer in English whose specialist area is modernism and who teaches The Great Gatsby on the English degree course. Finally, we're also joined by third year students Gracia Rodriguez and Jessica Clerken. So hello, everybody. Um, just a little bit on The Great Gatsby. It's one of the most lauded novels of the 20th century. Written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, it conjures images from a different time of parties and pearls and endless glamour. And yet it comments too on modern society as we know it, the creation of our own identity, the vacuity of consumerism, the constant search for meaning. Today we're going to discuss the novel in general, but also we're going to discuss a a recent theatrical run of it that took place at the Gate Theatre, which Kate attended, and which really sparked this as a podcast-worthy idea. So we'll start off with a little bit of background information, I guess, on the the novel. And Krista, you teach it as part of your uh, modern novel module on the English programme. So tell us a little bit about it and also about, I suppose, why it's important to us. Okay, so modernism um, is a period encompassing the years 1890 to 1950 and the novels of that period mark a radical departure from what went before. So when we look at Gatsby, we look in at the ways in which it is a modern novel. So uh, elements that we see in Gatsby include the unreliable narrator, perspective shapes reality and the loss of belief in absolute truth. So if we start with the unreliable narrator, In the 19th century, when we think of novels like Austen's novels, for example, we have an omniscient narrator. And an omniscient narrator is an all-seeing, all-knowing narrator. And what we see in the 20th century is this narrator replaced by the unreliable narrator, a narrator we can't trust And is that part, is that something to do with just this kind of modern condition where everything becomes more questionable? Absolutely. So what it has to do with is uh, reality becoming more subjective. So... um, in the 19th century, people believed in, a, in an observable, knowable reality. Mm. And this idea no longer holds in the 20th century because uh, our perception of reality has been radically changed by Einstein and Freud. So Einstein's theory of relativity um, shows that both time and motion are relative to the observer. And Freud shows that our present is always filtered through our past. So these ideas then make it impossible to um, believe in this single observable reality. Yeah, so and we're living in a more secular society, I suppose, as well. We don't have that, you know, the big G looking down on us, telling us what to do. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So what we see with Nick, um, Nick tells us at the very beginning of the novel, uh, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments. And of course, what he goes on then um, to do is offers his judgment of Gatsby and he says there's something gorgeous about him and a less favourable judgment of Tom as arrogant, cruel and supercilious. Um, so ultimately what we're getting is not a picture of reality, but a picture of Nick's reality. And as Nick observes, life is much more successfully looked at from a single window after all. And that single window is Nick's mind. So the idea of reality has changed, how we represent reality has changed. And also what we see in the modern novel is the loss of belief in absolute truth. Yeah. So when we think of the 19th century, we think of meta-narratives or, or uh, big truths like Christianity or any ideology that, that you care to think of. And 
this is just not fitting with the changes that characterise the 20th century and what you have is a more fragmented reality and a plurality of perspectives. Yeah. Um, so Gatsby is written in 1925, so it's a post-war novel. And what we see in the novel is a reality shaped by the trauma of the Great War and the intellectual and social transformations that mark the world as a result. And if we look at Gatsby and Nick... Um, what we see is memory cultures walking wounded, which I know the ladies are going to touch on as we move forward. So they're both figures who have looked out on this World War One spectacle of death and mass destruction like nothing that had come before. And as Beidler observes, they return from the war visibly unwounded. Still, both remain prisoners of the memory of having looked out on the landscape of death. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, when you start to read the novel, that 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 isn't to the fore. I mean, that's not the thing that you think of, is it, when you're when you're reading the novel? It's it's you think of this kind of amazing kind of self-constructed individual who has created the type of life that he always dreamed of. And you kind of think a part of you wants to kind of admire him for that, you know? Yeah, because he is a romantic hero, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. You know, he remains true to his ideals despite living in a world that cannot accommodate that, you know. Um, and you're right, you can read this text and enjoy the apparent gaiety and mm, frivolity yeah. of the world described therein, but it's actually a far darker, more existential novel yes. um, once we start exploring the complex layers of the text. And, you know, ultimately what um, Fitzgerald is conveying to us is a sense of disillusionment, um, which was common among post-World War One modernist writers. So the First World War was unlike any world that had preceded it in the sense that the physical devastation and the moral disillusionment that it left behind really changed the landscape and created what Elliot called a panorama of futility and despair. And really the fact that it appeared to contradict so violently the dominant Western idea of civilization's evolutionary progress brought about a loss of faith in mm. uh, modern society. And it's that loss of faith and spiritual decay and disillusionment that, that we see in the novel. So we have that as our kind of backdrop, if you like. That's what's happening yeah. in the background. Could you tell us, like, could we have a kind of a very brief synopsis for people who are listening, who, who let's say it's on their list of books that they always intended to read and they haven't really got there yet. What is it about? And I know this is also on the Leaving Search syllabus too. Um, so if we were to kind of put it in a nutshell... What is the novel, on the surface at least, what is the story of it? Okay, on the surface, we have uh, Nick uh, going to New York and uh, meeting his cousin Daisy and her husband Tom and hearing about this wonderful character, Gatsby, who throws great parties and everybody's talking about Gatsby. And as the novel progresses, we realise that actually most of these people don't know Gatsby at mm. all. He throws these fantastic parties, but he's always outside the parties. So you could read it as a celebration of um, the jazz age and life at that time. But actually, what we see as we read the novel is that there's very little to celebrate. It's really interesting. You know, in the, in the Baz Luhrmann um, adaptation, version, yeah. adaptation, and I don't know if Gracia and Jessica, you've seen that, um, no. but you know the kind of build-up that you get to the Gatsby mm. character. I think there's an awful lot in that that really kind of illuminates this idea about the... The, the expectation of somebody like this that nobody really genuinely knows but you think you know so you think you know the popular person you think mm. you know you know that they've got it all going on that they know everything and actually I think that that entrance that that kind of entrance of the character really does hammer home 
what you're talking about there is this person who's at the centre of everything and everything is spinning around him. And yet, when you look closer, maybe there's nothing there. You know, maybe there's nothing actually in at the centre at all. You know, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just no, me. No, I think that's <laughs> really true. I mean, you know, when we think of Gatsby, um, he is disturbingly affectless. You know, he's psychologically dissociated from uh, the people around him. And mm. Nick likens him to one of those intricate machines that measures earthquakes a thousand miles away. You know, so he's present, but he's absent. And actually what we're talking about is a shell-shocked character. It's, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress, although that might not have been articulated at the time. Yeah. But essentially that's what we see in both Nick and Gatsby. You know, and mm. they both recount their tales of the battlefield in the first a couple of pages. It's something they recognise in each other straight away. And they are, as Beidler says, the walking wounded. Yeah, yeah. Kate, just I'm really interested in in the idea of this being transferred to the stage. I've never actually seen a theatrical production of it, although I'm aware that there have been many of them, actually. How was it? So I know you got dressed up and it, it was... It was whole, fabulous. Was it Yeah, fabulous? it was beautiful. So uh, myself and Dr. Unikini, our resident Teresa DV expert, <laughs> we went in September to see the production. So it was produced at the gate and the novel has been adapted by Alexandra Wright, who also directed the production. But it was programmed by the new artistic director of the gate, Selena Cartmill. So she took up that position in April 2017. And it was a really interesting choice for a number of reasons. So the gate itself was founded in 1928, so just three years after the publication of the novel. Mm. So the architecture of the building reflects that decadence. It has these beautiful chandeliers. The auditorium is gorgeous. You know, Christy used that word. I mean, it's it's so apt for this production. And so that was kind of one thing that the architecture matched really well, this idea of Gatsby's mansion. And secondly, uh, Cartmel's programme, uh, her inaugural programme is The Outsider. So the play very much speaks to that and some of those ideas, Krista, that you've mentioned. Um, so The Gate described it as that the gate is open as audience as audience dance into one of Jay Gatsby's legendary parties. So oh. it was beautiful. The party began for us at the Gresham Hotel. <laughs> so we had our lunch. And as we were leaving to go and get ready, not so glamorously in the bathrooms, we passed all these people dressed in nice. 1920s costumes at the bar. So the play actually began, you know, before you even got into the building. And then we had great fun getting ready in our pearls and our headbands in the bathrooms. And then we joined, you know, just from everywhere, there were, you know, twos and threes of people just joining together outside the gate. And from the moment you got in, the box office staff were speaking American accents, the cloakroom staff were all dressed up. So you then carry on up into the gate. There's a bar and you could get your Gimlish, is that how it's pronounced, I yeah, think? Yeah. Um, your cocktail and you went you entered into the party. And so they took out all the seats of the auditorium. So for some of it, you were actually on the stage. So yes, I have made my gate debut <laughs> this year. Um, and there was also another bar I- inside in that area. And the play itself, so it's an immersive production. That was the adaptation. It, it has simultaneous narratives. So the auditorium functions I suppose as the main the main room so the main storyline happens there so you could stay there and see you know follow this through line of the story but you were encouraged to meet some of the characters and follow them around so Una and I were just 
um, you know, kind of taking it all in. And this photographer started to speak to us, who was McKee in the novel, who I think is only given a couple of pages, but was really extended in this production. And he was played by an actor called Raymond Scannell and was already asking, you know, who is Gatsby? I want to photograph Gatsby. So that sense of, you know, who is this man? Like that expectation, exactly, (laughs) was really being built. And then Owen Rowe uh, was was speaking to us um, about, you know, come visit me later on if you want in his kind of speakeasy. So there were, and you were, you knew other things were going on, which was very exciting. And... So sometimes the actors would secret you away. So we left the ballroom when we followed, for example, Scannell's character, the photographer, into this little corridor between the auditorium and backstage where we had this I suppose really kind of quite intimate moment there were only five or six of us Una was very close <laughs> to the actor um, and where he was I suppose revealing you know Wash. his character <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> pregnant pause there um, like some of his yeah the, I suppose the psychological motivation that he might have that isn't really explored in the novel so you kind of felt that you were you know getting a glimpse into something you know it, w- it was really exciting and then you were whisked back into the auditorium where we all performed the Charleston we learned that and I mean every single person yeah. was dressed up like it was it was as close we'll get to the 1920s you know wow. as as ever so it was a completely immersive experience it was that completely. was what, wow that sounds yes. amazing it was really really great and this was like what Christy you were saying about the the disjointed narratives i mean because it was this these simultaneous narratives happening you know you got that sense of you could never get close to gatsby you know you also remained on the outside of the story and while it was brilliant to dress up there was kind of that hollowness to it because the whole time you were talking to people oh wow your costume's great you know we almost didn't care so much about what was happening Mm. so I think the form really explored some of those modernist tensions that we've been talking about yeah wow that's so interesting I wish I was there I missed (laughs) an opportunity to be in pearls I can't believe this Um, yeah so we might come back to that actually because I really like the idea I'm going to come to one of the students here first uh, but I like that idea of Gatsby being this kind of construct that we see on stage and, and uh, you know, being able to kind of get a glimpse of him actually in the flesh, but not really get to know him in any way. Um, I just wanted to talk to Gracia and Jessica uh, just about about those characters. So, you know, one thing that does strike me about F. Scott Fitzgerald sometimes is that there's kind of a coldness about the way that he writes. And, you know, there are these delicious descriptions and fabulous evocative phrases and everything. But sometimes the characters can leave you a little bit cold because, you know, sometimes they behave in despicable ways or they're just not warm or whatever. Did you care about the characters? Should we care about them um, at all? What did you think? Yes, I um, I think that you should definitely care about some of the characters. And I think that the coldness you're talking about, um, Fitzgerald did that on purpose because he is trying to show how they were feeling after the war. Um, In particular, I care about Gatsby. Um, I cared about Gatsby more the second time I read it when I, as I'm studying it than when I did when I first read it. When I first read it, I just took it as a gorgeous book that was very, very fun to read. Um, I didn't pay attention to the green light. And now I see how important the green light is for Gatsby. So tell us a little bit about that green light, because that green light is kind of this very important metaphor in the novel, isn't it? The green light is 
his idealised past that he's trying to find throughout the book and he thinks he's going to find that with Daisy Mm. when in actuality he never had that idealised past. It was just an illusion, much like the illusion that they're hiding behind in the book, Yeah, especially with with Gatsby and his parties. Um, But for me, as a reader, Gatsby is really important to try and find myself because I see myself in Gatsby. Really? Yeah. Really? That's really interesting. How? Um, I mean, I, 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 do you know what strikes me about it in, in a way is, you know, the way that we all construct this image of ourselves online is mm-hmm, that, you yeah. know, it has this kind of freshness about it now. I think when you look at it with that in mind, do you, is that what you mean or do you have a different kind of take on it? Yes, absolutely. I see that people are hiding behind that illusion through social media. Mm. And um, I think it's definitely something I've bought into too. And I've had my own green light. I've had my own war. I've been disillusioned. Um, But rather than search for an idealised past, I've learned through Gatsby that that green light, it does exist, but I can use it to my benefit um, by finding the green light in me, not behind me, maybe a little bit in front of me. That's so is it is it potential, do you think, for happiness? Is that what you think it could signify? Yeah, then? I think it's just like because um I'm always trying to find something mm. and Yeah. It's learn. so important. The search. The search. Yes, the yeah. search. But the search it, the search, I think it's this the green light exists within within all of us and it's it's only in us. And that's what Gatsby has taught me that Maybe if he had to find the green light inside himself rather than searching it elsewhere. Externally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because those parties are like this giant effort to find, mm-hmm. you know, your your place, isn't it? And yet it's not there. It's certainly not there. Yeah, exactly. Um, Grassy, what do you think? I mean, what, what's your take on those characters? Right. <clears throat> well, I would like to talk a bit about Nick Carraway. I think Nick Carraway is a very, very interesting character. Mm. Because once you put all the puzzle pieces together, Gatsby is surprisingly simple. And the mystery, the real mystery, I think, here is Nick. Yeah. Um, in in a way, Nick is is, 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 is the real mystery. Like like Krista was saying, he is the, the unreliable narrator as well. We don't know much about him, his background. He's he works in finances and he has great connections when he get when he arrives in New York. But we know that he's not drowning in money like the rest. Um, Nick is different. He has a sharp eye and sometimes critical, but he's not afraid to use it. Uh, his perception of things viewed from a different angle turn him into a kind of a wire with a genuine feeling. Uh, Nick changes throughout the book as well. And uh, in the end, he realizes his change and accepts that he'll never be the same after what, what happened. But his character, the dilemma of his character never gets resolved, I would say. Um, We don't know where he's going. We just know that he's leaving the house. But by observing that all the characters in the story are from the West, he sums up one of the main themes in the novel. Mm. The idea that perhaps our origins define who we are, or at least that the type of world in which we grow. So yeah, there's something really interesting about the whole Midwest yes, idea, isn't there? Yeah. This this kind of locum of morals, uh, it, it, you know, it's a geographical location, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can't be that simple, though, can it? I mean, it can't be that simple. It, it's obviously 
you know, he's trying to tell us something about corruption and about, you know, corruption of those ideals. But is it is it is it as simple as to say, well, you know, if you go back to the Midwest, everything's going to be fine. It can't be that, can it? No, it could never be that because uh, he's he, they're all chasing, again, the American dream. Yeah. You know, that comes here. The Great Gatsby, I think, is a meditation that's full of symbolism, full of symbolism and uh, about the US as a whole in the decade of the 20s and in particular about the disintegration of that American dream in an era of unprecedented prosperity and material excesses. It's like money is the new God. Yeah, And I think yeah. that is important because uh, uh, Fitzgerald is 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 not it's it's only reflecting God in in the ad of oh, Christian Heidelberg. Yes. So it's that search, isn't it? Like we were talking about the search before. Yeah. It's the search and the idea of the unreliable narrator. The fact that we are trying to replace maybe that overarching meta narrative or the, this kind of centrality in our lives with something that we no longer maybe have God or we no longer have this idea of subjective or sorry objective rather knowledge you know uh, everything is on a sh- on shifting ground if you like mm. um, so Nick Nick is is us would you say Nick represents us then in the novel is he is he more of a realistic interpretation of this idea that the me- that the American dream is never really going to be what it seems or or is he are we supposed to criticize him too are we supposed to kind of look at him and say well you're not somebody that we can trust either like we can't trust Gatsby that's clear that's patent but maybe Nick is simply going to self-destruct too I don't know I mean I'm just throwing these things out here but what do, what do all of you think well, I say Nick is certainly the moral centre of the novel. I mean, you have reprehensible characters like Tom and Daisy, you know, who um, take moral relativity to a new extreme, you know. <laughs> um, but I think what Fitzgerald is saying is take what Nick says with a pinch of salt, because although Nick um, starts off uh, quite objectively, um, we see over the course of the novel that he becomes almost seduced by Gatsby and the idea of Gatsby himself, you know. So mm. um, Nick is certainly telling us what's happening from his perspective but you know that's the point that we have to remember that it's a subjective understanding of reality mm-hmm. and we're not getting a picture of things as they really are you yeah. know because even Myrtle and other characters in the novel offer us other pictures of Nick you know and they, they question his reliability and you know that's there for a reason to make us question the picture that Nick is sharing with us and I think the production did that really well because we were encouraged to seek out these smaller, almost kind of backstory scenes. There is a, uh, Una and I saw a scene between Myrtle and her husband uh, in which it's revealed the pressures on their marriage. Mm. You know, so again, something that, you know, it's probably suggested just in the novel, but in the adaptation, they're really exploring that. And because you have this simultaneous narrative, uh, it is pointing to the fact, actually, that like all memory is unreliable. You know, we yes. self-select um, to paint ourselves in, in the best light in the <laughs> stories that we tell. Uh, so, yeah, it was a very successful uh, production from that point of view as well. It's interesting, actually, when we're talking about the idea of the unreliable narrator, 
that when you put it in a theatrical context, I mean, you don't have that, do you? You don't have somebody saying, and now this person, this is from my perspective, this is what's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it removes that in a sense, doesn't it? it how, does. do, how do they deal with that? Like, was Nick still our guide through this world? Or yes, what? I mean, I suppose they, the decision to anchor it in the main auditorium so that you knew you could always go back there and the, the main set pieces were there. So the, the, the big scene uh, at the the table in New York, the car crash scene happens there. Um, and Nick does begin for us. So this uh, Nick was played by Marty Ray. So it was a very sensitive, but very commanding presence. He's a very tall actor and he stood on a table at the very beginning. You know, so setting up the idea that, you know, he, he is, I am the narrator, this is my take. This um, is my vantage point. Yes, yeah. exactly. Very good. And then, uh, but very quickly, uh, you, because, you know, you don't quite know how to be in that situation. There are no seats, you know, there are very few seats to sit down. So you're encouraged to move around suddenly. So you have, you are dislocated mm. almost from the moment it begins. Isn't uh, that a good idea? It is. And it, it, uh, I heard someone describe the production as very democratic in that way. It's a bit like opening the gate, which would have that tradition always of going from page to stage, particularly um, the adaptation of the novel. But it, it's it's opening the theatre to the people saying, you know, come and be in the auditorium, be backstage, be in the corridors. You know, this is your theatre, this is your space. Yeah. Um, at a nice ticket price too, Mad. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm. So only for the people who can afford the pearls then. Yes, but, you know, also kind of reflective of, you know, come to the party, but yeah. only if you know someone yes. or you can afford to do so or whatever. Yeah, the idea of not needing an invitation once you can, once yeah. you know you belong. And there were these great, um, we met this group of women who would come from Monaghan, just all dressed up in their finery, which I think is just a brilliant image, you know, yeah. <laughs> early on in the day, just this group of 1920s. And I saw people, uh, speaking of social media, Jenny, um, you know, Facebooking that they were on the Lewis dressed up. I mean, it was just <laughs> like about how, it, you know, for a moment might have interrupted someone else's day and someone else's yeah. narrative who had no idea what was going on at the gate on a Saturday. How brilliant. Isn't that fantastic? And I think, you know, there, isn't there a description in the novel about Daisy? Oh, I can I can never remember. It's like looking like money. Was it looking like money or she looked like money? Wasn't that something? Uh, but she, I just, her voice her dripped voice, with money. Her yes, voice, voice, that yes, was it. Her yes. voice dripped with money. That was it. And I just thought, always thought that was always a kind of a phrase that stuck with me. It's the perfect way to describe certain people that you might mm. encounter I wouldn't say no I'm afraid but you might encounter in life that these people that seem to just kind of live in a completely different existence Daisy is a character who interests me I have to say um, she like Fitzgerald isn't really that kind to some of his characters is he uh, Gatsby obviously has major flaws Tom is a brute pretty much and um, but like the women don't come about, come out of it much better. Jordan kind of cheats at golf. Uh, she's not that reliable. She kind of disappears, doesn't she, at the end? And then we have Daisy, who you kind of think, come on, do something, Daisy. Yeah, <laughs> what do you think? That, yeah. Gracia has definite well, ideas about Daisy, don't you? But what do you think of her, Gracia? Do you uh, like her? No, I don't like. Wait, I know. I know. Like Daisy. I know. How can anybody like Daisy? I kind of like her. I kind of do, do like her. Yeah, despite myself. But you know, uh, I, okay. I, I, I kind of do. But it, I, I feel like there's. I suppose it's probably because of the reason that I like some of the characters in the novel. Anyways, that you feel there's potential there. Right. Yeah. In that way, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. She, Daisy. Daisy is a dreamer. Yeah. And uh, she she shares kind of a rose tinted. 
uh, image of their past with with Gatsby. The two of them have that in common. Don't don't we all do that? Like, yeah, with the, you know there might so be past experiences. Yeah, yeah, you get true. you get it. But this makes her feel that everything uh, in the present is dull and boring. So she's looking for that bit more. She sees the past in a very melancholic but cynical way as well. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Daisy's problem is that she, she isn't really that mythical as she believes she is, you know. At the end of the day... To see herself just, as a mythical character, you mean, is it? Yeah, or, she yeah. sees herself as someone mythical, but she's not really. She's mm. At the end of the day, she's only just a common, normal person like you or me mm. with her, all, all her defects. And in the end... She doesn't have the guts to leave everything for Gatsby because it's out, outside her comfort zone, her cotton wool world. So she goes back to, to Tom, who is a brute, you know. Yeah. And do you, do you think she ever really knew Gatsby? Was there a Gatsby at one time to know? Yeah. Yeah. At the beginning, when, when they had their when their first encounter, they, they, it was it was more kind of a pure kind of a innocent love, I thought. And then, you know, uh, but but. Deep down, uh, Daisy is a very, very selfish character. She's not, you know, she, she, she has invented this, this kind of a image of herself. But in the end, she's just too human to satisfy Gatsby's needs. So mm-hmm. she, she can't give up her, her world. Do you think that Gatsby wants her to be this kind of? She's kind of a courtly love ideal, isn't she? In a yeah, sense, in a sense, this yeah. woman on a pedestal. Yeah, in true. perfect pearls, and I mean, again, that's all it you is. Can't, I think yeah, it's yeah. it's seeing those cinematic adaptations mm. that make me want to like her. It's the it's the construction of her as well by the camera and the way that the camera loves her, mm. and it makes you understand that appeal. I think you know what that's I mean. The idea, yeah, the idea is absolutely. That we're all attracted to this kind of a facade yeah, yeah. of the pearls and their beautiful face and, and all this. But it's only that, you know, deep down, there's nothing. There's emptiness, you know. She is hollow. Would you agree, Krista? Yeah, I think it would be impossible for Daisy to fulfil uh, Gatsby's uh, ideal of who she is, you know, because mm-hmm. it's not based on any realistic encounter. It's this uh, nostalgia, this idealised past that Gatsby is trying to um, get back to. And we see in, in the novel when Gatsby is forced to acknowledge that she has a child, it almost, you know, disrupts him out of his own mm-hmm. narrative. Um, but Daisy... You know, Daisy's quite a disappointing character and, you know, that's in fitting with the disappointment and disillusionment that, that characterised the age. Yes, um, that maybe that's what I'm kind of getting at, that there is yeah, that you want her to do more. Right, Jenny. Yeah, there is that unrealised potential in Daisy. I mean, to me, the most interesting line that she utters in the novel is, when her daughter is born, I hope she'll be a fool, a beautiful fool. Yes. And, you know, we think, is this it? Is this the moment when Daisy realises, you know, the futility of her life and maybe changes? And no, it's not. She, she's not ready to leave that life. Um, and at another point, she says, I'm p- p- paralysed mm-hmm. with happiness, you know. Yes. And uh, it's a really interesting line as well, because she certainly is paralysed. It's a spiritual paralysis, a moral paralysis, but it's very clear to us that she is not going to move forward. And in that way, she's, representative of her time and I think all of the women are are static representations in that way they don't change over the course of the novel yes yeah it's such a pity we want more and yet of course that's what the novel is trying to tell us yeah and I suppose that's where the production might challenge the novel then in that regard because the interpretation with these you know simultaneous narratives does allow you does allow the actors to explore that little bit more so we get a maybe slightly more rounded view I mean it might be exactly what Fitzgerald intended 
ended. But, you know, adaptations have to bring something new or else you're yeah. just putting on a museum piece. And this, you know, certainly did that. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's over and you cannot get to see it. But <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think it does remind us, though, that there are there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm. Like we have this on the Leave Insert syllabus. And I suppose we have to recognise that these novels by these dead white males, which we're always talking about in class, um, they still have longevity because there is some kind of applicability to our lives today. And there's something to be said about the relevance of this novel to those students who are reading it for the Leaving Cert now. It really does say something about the modern condition. It says Mm. something about losing faith in those overarching narratives and about presenting yourself in a certain way and what that does to you actually on the inside um, and the decay and the disillusionment that can come with that, you know. So unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time, but I think that's kind of a fitting place to end. We want those Leaving Cert students to come here and experience The Great Gatsby again with us. Maybe we'd change the text if they were coming because they'd already read it. Um, But it is it is a really interesting text and I, I think it's it's one that's worth going back to. Thankfully, those dead white males have left us something, haven't they? Something good. <laughs> uh, I would really like to thank our students, Gracia and Jessica, Krista, our lecturer in English, and Kate, lecturer in English and Theatre Studies here today, to, for being with us and talking about The Great Gatsby. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you.